Hi, and welcome to the China Business Minute. I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this week we're not going to Beijing or Shanghai because Jake Parker is here in Washington. Jake Parker is the Vice President for China Operations here at the U.S. China Business Council. Jake, thanks for stopping by the office. My pleasure. All right, so four topics we're going to hit today.、Um, first, the unreliable entities list has been in the news, and I know you guys have some information on that. Second, I want to cover the white paper that the Ministry of Commerce announced recently, and then last, we want to talk about supply chains and how they're shifting and how companies can sort of strategically deal with the China market moving forward. So maybe first, you want to hit the the hot news topic, the unreliable entities list, with some information you've got. Yeah, I'd be pleased to do that. So on May 31st, the Ministry of Commerce announced that it was creating an unreliable entity list, which would target foreign companies, organizations, and individuals that do not obey market rules and contracts, or block supplies to Chinese entities for non-commercial reasons. The action came shortly after the United States added Huawei to its entity list, effectively barring American companies from doing business with the company.、Uh, subsequent statements have indicated that the list is a trade-related competition policy, suggesting that companies who comply with the U.S. entity list are abusing market dominance in China by restricting access to technology at the behest of "quote-unquote" foreign governments.、Uh, the statements have also identified the legal justification for the list as the foreign trade law. Um, the unreliable entities list will address gaps in other laws as well.、Uh, very quickly, I think there's there's it's useful to note the four factors that will be considered when including a company on the entities list. Factor one: whether the entity has blocked, cut supply of, or conducted discriminatory measures against China. Second: whether the entity's actions are based on non-commercial purposes or contrary to the market rules and spirit of the contract. Third: whether the entity's action caused substantial damage to Chinese enterprises or related industries. And fourth: whether the entity's action posed a threat to potential or potential threat to national security. Mofcom has said that companies added to the list will be given an opportunity to appeal the decision, make commitments to be removed from the list, or meet undefined conditions to be removed. That being said, I think many of the initial feedback that we've received from companies has indicated that they're a little concerned about this list and the potential to disrupt their operations in China. Okay, so so I know that's not the only thing the Ministry of Commerce has released lately. I know they've also released a, a white paper.、Um, maybe you could give us a bit of a lowdown on that as well. Sure. So, so the white paper was meant to respond to the U.S. Trade Representative's comments on the breakdown in the bilateral negotiations. I think when we at the U.S.-China Business Council look at the white paper, what we see is a call to continue negotiations going forward. Ostensibly, it is an overture to resume talks.、Uh, China, I think, felt that it needed to respond to the U.S. claims of backsliding, and it did so with this white paper. But it's also messaging to an international audience that China is still open to negotiations and is looking forward to a constructive relationship with the United States over the medium and long term, even if in the short term things have broken down a little bit. Okay, so as as things are breaking down, that's kind of a segue into the way that companies are sort of having to deal with this.、So、I know supply chains have been shifting around for some people, or at least there has been talk of supply chains shifting around for some people. Could you sort of fill us in there? Absolutely. So when we talk to companies on the ground in Beijing, they indicate that they're putting new investments on hold in the China market. That doesn't mean they're divesting, but they're definitely reevaluating their exposure to the China market.、Uh, when we ask companies about where they may be thinking about shifting supply chains, they tell us that they're scrutinizing Vietnam, Thailand, and Malaysia as the most possible production alternatives 
to China. One interesting fact about Vietnam is that there's significant demand for land and talent in Vietnam today, and as a result, there are huge price increases there. Uh, one company noted that labor is also increasing in cost because of that demand by as much as 30% year-on-year salary increases in, at the local level. For technical production manager talent, to sh- uh, many of the companies are indicating that they may need to pay a 50% premium on salary if they're recruiting someone away from another company. It's also useful to note that the entire population of Vietnam is about 90 million. Around 60 million are in the workforce, 30 million working in apparel, shoes, handbag manufacturing, one of the big areas that's shifting to Vietnam. So the supply of workers is extremely limited. Additionally, many of our companies have indicated that the raw materials will still come directly from China. So there will be an increased logistics cost because the supply chains will not be as integrated as they are in the China market. In sum, I think we can say that Vietnam volumes can never reach China volumes. The population is just too small. The entire country is smaller than the population of Guangdong. So it's not a realistic replacement for China, but it is a potential alternative as companies think about their future in production. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of touched on it here, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, on just generally company strategies, you know, the, the, the sort of strategies that, that, that folks are taking, generally speaking, as the U.S.-China relationship is, is evolving. Sure. So, so as I mentioned, I, I think many of our companies are taking a wait-and-see strategy. They see significant long-term growth in the China market. Around a third of global growth over the next decade will be in China. They need to be there to take advantage of that growth. Secondly, our companies are trying to keep a low profile at the moment. Uh, one company described it as a submarine strategy to stay below the surface, allow the two governments to work on what they need to work on, but keep themselves out of the limelight. Third, uh, companies want to stay away from the central government in China at the moment. There's obviously a lot of politics, a lot of rhetoric around the United States, and many are afraid that they could become targets uh, as a reflection of the central government's perspective on the U.S. government as opposed to uh, a direct influence on U.S. companies. Uh, Fourth, uh, many of our companies are telling us that they are trying to stay very close to the local government. Without reservation, I can say that local governments in China today have been extremely supportive of U.S. companies operating there uh, because local governments are incentivized in a different way. They need to see economic growth. They need to make sure that they're driving employment, that they're continuing to have steady tax revenue. All of these things are supported by U.S. company operations and their markets, and they want to continue to focus on those going forward. Uh, so I think these are the, the four main strategies that we're hearing today in the China market. All right. Concise and informative as always. Jake, thanks again. Thank you. The China Business Minute is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and you can learn more on our website, uschina.org. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on our website or on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks, and we'll be back next week.